Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikani. And, and we're, we're your, your hosts. hosts. My name is Tabakotswane. I am a former VIT student. I was studying journalism here, doing my honours, and now I am working at VAWFM as a news desk editor. And in terms of um, African languages ensuring that students pass, especially black students in the university, I do think that um, there is a valid call for that because most black students in this country, considering the history of South Africa, come from schools whereby the teachers are all black and the, the main mode of communication in those schools is not necessarily English. So they taught in um, African languages and most of the time you get that students are taught math and they prosper in those environments and then they removed from those environments and they brought into a university space whereby the main medium of language is English. So it's quite a confusing um, process for them to go through because mainly you don't even understand this language that you're being taught in and it's not necessarily that you're not smart. It's not necessarily that you don't understand the course material. It is the language in which the course material is been taught in and the level at which that language is used that you find that a lot of um, black students especially start dropping out because they can't keep up with that, mode, with that medium of, of teaching. Welcome to another episode of The Academic Citizen. I'm your host, Nasipum Gomezulu, and today I will be talking to Professor Brenda Mshambi. Head of the Department of African Languages at the University of the Witwatersrand, Professor Mshambi joined the department in 96, and her research focuses on a range of issues surrounding African language literature, the history of South African print media and African languages, as well as popular culture in Africa and the diaspora. Currently, she's supervising students whose areas of focus are in African languages, publishing, storytelling, and visual culture. How are you today? I'm fine in yourself. I'm good. Thank you for making time to speak with us. All right, great. So today's episode, we'd like to delve into the issue of language, specifically African languages and higher education. Can you briefly give us a sketch of like your work in this area and your interest in African languages? All right. Um, my my training in, in African languages is basically from um, a literary kind of uh, studies, a literary discipline, where I've been sort of um, looking at um, Zulu literature from the 10th century, uh, even much earlier than that up to now. But then when, when, when you are in this space, you know, the African languages field, uh, you get to, to interact with a range of of issues that are beyond just this narrow interest in just literatures uh, that would actually invariably touch on um, language matters, language politics, uh, the language economy and such like other issues that would affect language users and the status of the language in a linguistic kind of a terrain like South Africa. So my interest also sort of extended to such issues not only by design but also by training that was 
one gets from the spectrum of, 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 of offering and courses that we, we get to be exposed to as undergrad students as well as postgraduate students. And later on in life, when as a scholar, you begin to sort of engage with the issues of language on a daily kind of a basis. So in that way, I got to be involved with uh, language um, development issues, uh, language uh, in, in, in scholarship, the intellectualization of African languages, especially in the 21st century, um, technology development, uh, curriculum development of African languages and such like things. So one gets to have that kind of a, a broad spread as one actually gets deeper and deeper into the field, then one gets to actually experiment and experience a broader kind of a spectrum of issues that affect African languages in that sense. I want to pick up on, on the intellectualization. Did you say intellectualization? The intellectualization of African the languages. intellectualization of African languages, because there is this misconception that African languages and orature is the best way in which we come to understand and know of African languages. Mm-hmm. And so when you speak of intellectualization, for me what springs to mind is print and text. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that relationship of the misconception of African languages as only oral? When I speak about inter- intellectualization of African languages now, we're no longer talking about just print. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, print already had happened since the missionary um, reduced African languages to print. And uh, throughout the last century, we've seen the development of print in various kinds of ways where African languages are involved in in newspapers, in novelistic form, uh, and in other forms, intellectualization would actually begin to speak to the core, higher levels of language usage in academia, uh, in judiciary, in other spaces uh, that are not just for daily kinds of conversations, Mm -hmm. but for other kinds of purposes of languages, of language use. And and that's what I mean by intellectualization. And in particular, uh, that had been sort of conceived, that term had been conceived with a a specific kind of consideration to the demands that have been brought up by those in, in mother tongue teaching uh, that we've seen happening elsewhere whereby students that have been taught by uh, in their mother tongue are uh, seem to be doing much better than those that have not been taught in their mother tongue. Mm-hmm. And we've seen the foundation phase that had actually begun to sort of give us positive kinds of results and with the intermediate phases at primary schools and so on and so on. But because knowledge keeps on changing and being added to and living in the era of information kinds of overloads, you know, you would like to keep up with all of that and especially as all of that would affect academic learning and training at Mm -hmm. higher institutions of learning. Uh, like university and so on and so on. So when we talk about the intellectualization of African languages, we are actually beginning to talk to the needs of our students who are not necessarily maritime speakers of English or who do not have the kind of necessary proficiencies to make them academically sufficient as students at uh, higher education institutions to actually begin to talk to their needs as well. I mean, they get to be excluded because their English is not good enough. And um, if there was an alternative where African languages can begin to actually be used at that level as well, 
that would begin to sort of bring these languages to a state where they can begin to be used at various higher kinds of levels mm. that are important. So for us, that is the key issue here, that the language should actually be brought up to the uh, levels that are enjoyed by Africans in English. We've seen with Africans, Africans was also not a language of higher levels of communication, but over time, uh, because of interest and because of political will mm. and it was over time brought to that level and now Africans can be used for the sciences, can be used as language of medicine, can be used of the language, as language of the law as language of parliament and so mm. on and so on you know, the list goes on like that and African languages can also achieve that with a right political will and the right kind of determination of course it would need resources mm. to be poured into it to actually develop like that. We've seen Africans have actually been able to, mm. to, to achieve that because there were resources and there were experts to actually help it grow towards those kinds of directions that were predetermined and, di- and desired. So that's what we're talking about. And quite interestingly, what I'm talking about as well is not perfect because indeed what young as well mm. was also like for the past uh, several years we've been talking about African languages as languages of scholarship mm. and he's precisely talking to this as well, that African languages cannot really be used as communicative languages at a lower social kind of uh, uh, level, but they, they need to actually be invested in mm. uh, so that they, they, they are also languages that offer higher usage you know, kind of domains where they also contribute immensely to scholarship sure. and to the production of knowledge. I, I want to return to Google. <laughs> I've got a whole section on Google that I want, that I want yeah, us to, yeah, to talk yeah. about. But you said something really interesting about the ways in which multilingualism can be a resource in the classroom. And I think a lot of people, when you talk about African languages and higher education, there is this tendency that it can be a kind of support. So it, it kind of props up that English really is the main language of instruction. Mm-hmm. And so I just want, I'd like you to speak a little bit to this relationship between multilingualism, multilingualism and also African language scholarship. So whether you're doing science, mathematics in African languages and how you see the relationship between the two. Because at least in my experience, code switching in the classroom is a really useful way for getting students to engage. But it's not necessarily assisting my students that I engage with to actually be able to articulate themselves in English. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I might code switch some anthropological concepts and maybe give examples in Zulu, but ultimately English remains the central intellectual that's, language that's the work the, is done. That, that's the unfortunate part where English continues to enjoy this dominance and up to so far it has not been challenged. And and some of these language use kinds of, of variations that you see happening on the sites like code switching and it's code switching code switching, it's translanguaging, code mixing, and so on and so on. These are language usages that are emerging from the margins Mm. um, that had not find their way into the mainstream um, hierarchies of how the language had come to be used. So it's only even now that people can begin to say, actually having co- having a classroom code switch is actually a resource 
Mm. is slowly being actually accepted as a pedagogical kind of a practice. In many instances, it's still no. English is the language that's aimed for. You can code switch as much as you like, and maybe you would have had students that have been exposed to a code switching, code mixing classroom as much as you like, but that is not carried through our can you see. Mm. Um, they can spend 10 years at high school and primary school being exposed to that, but all of a sudden when they come to university, it's expected that they should actually write academic English and as well as articulate themselves verbally using academic English. So there's no correlation between practice uh, outside the classroom and inside the classroom. Mm. And that uh, would actually create some kind of confusion. And then it makes uh, speakers of the language to begin to weigh what is it exactly that they benefit mm. uh, from code switching and, and not code switching. And because the reality is such that, that English is still enjoying that kind of linguistic dominance, mm. realities yeah. are they will code switch less, even though we have proven now that code switching is actually a resource, a linguistic resource for them to understand concepts that they would not necessarily easily engage with mm. if they were not actually reduced to code switching and code mixing. It's the nature of how the languages are structured and the attitudes that are generated. Either these attitudes are generated now or are received from long practices, you know, over time that would determine the, an extent to which students are able to see um, code switching in a, in a classroom that is multilingual as one that is actually a resourceful kind of a classroom mm. for a greater kind of interaction, uh, greater facilitating of understanding and so on and so on. So, I mean, we've spoken a little on, on, on some of the, the challenges in terms of perceptions of, like, the place of African languages in universities. Mm. Do you think, firstly, to ask a, an institutional question, do you think the case of African languages presents a challenge to historically white institutions in this country, particularly, and what are what we would call post-universities or black universities? Mm. Do you, in, in your work, do you find that there's a different attitude, different kind of political will? as it were, based on the historical you know, differentiation when, when, of institutions. When, when, when the, 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 the bill was passed earlier on to actually get universities to adopt an African language, that would be used as part of the institutional kinds of language policies and the like. The historically white institutions and historically black or Bush universities responded differently with some white institutions, they've been a different kind of transformation. I'm thinking of the case of N and UCT to a large extent where they actually set programs to 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 actually change the linguistic landscape of the university. And um, they introduced courses, medical courses, um, um, you know, those labor intensive related kinds of uh, degrees like mining and so on to actually get their students to learn African languages or professional degrees to actually sort of um, sort of um, get their students to study African languages and, 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 and some of them even went further to actually make buildings and change just the linguistic terrain you know mm-hmm. but a sense that things were moving on and that was celebrated and in many instances some of these are uh, traditionally white institutions even surpassed the traditional black institution in terms of linguistic change. Sure. But then, is this, is this a resource question? Not, I, I, I'm not sure, but then from 2010 or thereabouts, then there was sudden stagnation in all of them. Hmm. 
you understand? It, it, the stagnation sort of now was of such high proportions that even universities like that that had never even started, that only had a language policy to produce to the government should it be needed, um, found all of a sudden that we're all in the same boat now. The changes that had been introduced, that people were hype about, you know, talking about the changes and celebrating these changes, now they suddenly found that, oh, they've stopped. It's, it, it, you can tell that the universities were responding to even a greater kind of a problem mm. because the government had a language policy, uh, was problematic in the manner in which it was conceptualized, in the manner in which it was written because it left so many loopholes and multiple interpretations to such an extent that the government itself could not implement its own language policy. So how can it intend oh, expect either the corporate or education or uh, higher education or even basic education to implement any of the language policies that they have adopted. You understand? Mm. So it all stems from the attitude from the government itself. Compare a government, say, with the, the other governments that we've got, we had in the past, the, the colonial one and um, the, the apartheid one, the colonial one. In 15 years, uh, Lord James Ford said uh, in 1802 that in 15 years he wanted to see Western, the Western Cape being Little Britain. Mm. And so it was in 15 years in Britain. And the Dutch did the same thing in a few space, in a few years. Um, this the linguistic terrain change. The Africaners did the same in a few years, the linguistic terrain change. Uh, we are into 22nd years of democracy. Nothing has changed because the political will is not strong enough to carry the kinds of transformation we want to see for our people and, and for the language as well, in particular for the language as well. So now, if the political will is cascaded to institutions and, and corporate institutions and educational institutions and other social uh, entities that might have a direct or indirect interest in the transformation of our linguistic mm-hmm. space, then it becomes a problem whose yeah. duty it is to actually see that there is transformation in the spaces we live in True. and what models are there to enforce implementation if there is resistance. Mm. You understand? It's a bigger Definitely. problem. It's a yeah. bigger problem. So one can, even though we, we may lambast beds because their the, the first interest is education and making sure that people access education in a fair democratic kind of a way, at the same time, language policies are also attended by resources. We need lots of money to actually see that coming through. Mm. And and right now, we do not know whether it's a resource problem or it's a political kind of a mm. problem. Until that is clarified to ourselves and, and for the government as well, mm. we can't have just policies that are thrown about, but then they're not going through. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's the major problem for me. Sure. And I, and I guess it's also, as you're talking about in corporate and government and higher education, but secondary school education as well, when we, the research is there about mother tongue learning mm-hmm. is that most mm-hmm. ideal, especially mm-hmm. in the first seven mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the big things, at least, that my generation always gets admonished for is that we are not proficient in our mother tongue, nor in English. 
Yes. We are speaking what Naman calls Zungish. <laughs> and, and, and in your experience, in your research, do you find that younger generations struggle when mother tongue or African languages are introduced? That's, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Because if probably we were to go by the the recent kinds of experiences, remember in all of these basic basic schooling kinds of learning experiences, parents were given a chance to actually adopt the language policies for the school mm. and they adopted English, right? Mm. If we were to go with that you now for the past 20 years, the kinds of students that we've got now, especially those that come from ex-model C schools, mm. they would be highly, highly proficient in English but we still find that they struggle with academic English. How mm. can that be when they've actually had 12 years mm. of being taught in English, where their teaching and learning experiences were in English and yet they still have a problem with English and we still do not have the, the maths and science kinds of students that would actually begin to fill the need that had been identified. That's That that would tell you that that language policy uh, that had been happening in all of these major uh, schools and uh, primary and secondary schooling is not actually effective in the manner in which we think it would be effective. And instead, what we had experienced team through Ibando education where we were having um, English as a, a subject and then certain courses taught in English and then we had this is Zulu and our playtime was around uh, in the school grounds we would actually be communicating this is Zulu at home, this is Zulu at home. We, we came out being a bit more balanced mm. in the manner in which we process uh, the English language for academic purposes. Mm. You understand? Mm. Even though in terms of intonation now when we begin to articulate we would not articulate ourselves using the right kinds of intonation and accents and so on and so on. But the manner in which the uh, academic English was able to sit through into our minds and interact with the foundation that had been laid by our mother tongue was much better than the later generation. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. As Mbugi was talking yeah, about accents true. for access. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> trading in trading in uh, an yeah. accent-based <laughs> approach. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's very interesting speaking on like primary school education and, and high school education and how then it feeds into higher education is this perception of like being global, that English is global, that being proficient in an African language in higher education makes one poor. And in this and argument, I'm sure you... It's a false one, of, <laughs> of course. course. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. English had been able to position itself as a global language mm. and as though it's absolutely global. And it works in South Africa because most South Africans, um, it's only post, in post-apartheid uh, South Africa that South, like South Africans are now globetrotters. They're beginning to be international people that go to different places for different kinds of uh, business interest or tourism or whatever. And probably it's now being apparent to them that English is not as global as it's as it's postulated to be. I've been to Brazil, no one knows in English there. Mm-hmm. You go to uh, Portugal, no one knows in English there. You go through Germany, they don't know English, some of the people there. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, friends as well, people don't know English, um, other people don't know English. Um, they, and, 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 and then you begin to say, definitely there's something here that's, that, that, that we are not private <laughs> to. We've been conned so into yeah, something. We've been conned into believing something that is not necessarily true. Hmm. And, and, and quite interestingly, another, probably it's not that it made you global, but it actually opened um it opened opportunities for you and uh, the opportunities for us growing up in pre-1994 kind of era it was that once you know English then you, you can actually begin to experience social mobility mm-hmm. and economic mobility and so on and so on. and all of those were found within spheres where English was used mm-hmm. uh-huh. and now interestingly enough um, post the birthday we've got now black people who have got uh, businesses that can employ you and um, English is no longer uh, a necessity for mm. you to actually have a role to play in that space. Very slow, mm. it's losing that international mm. kind of play because or, or the fact that English equals social and economic mobility. At least slowly losing that, which is a good thing mm. because now people can begin to see that you do not need English for everything mm. in your life but you need it for certain things and only certain things only. And you can go overseas and come to uh, and go to countries where it won't be a necessity, and you need to communicate in some way with locals there to 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 actually uh, get around mm-hmm. uh, in Brazil. We we came across people who did not even know what we were saying, and we had to resort to sign language. Do you understand? Yeah. So now, quite interestingly, sign language becomes mm-hmm. more universal than English in such instances. And and then how how do we then make sense of English as an African language. Can we conceive of English? I mean, Afrikaans as a Creole is an African language, but with English spoken in various ways all over the globe in the Black diaspora particularly, do we see but do you rather, I mean, mm. I'm speaking in the global way, mm. is, there, is there a way of conceiving of English as an African language? I think maybe I can throw back the question to you, why should you conceive it as an, as an African language? Mm. I mean, for argument's sake, here, let's let's play. <laughs> for argument's sake, if uh, say Arabic and slowly the movements in France to kind of recognize that there is a much richer linguistic sphere than just French, and not yeah. just French spoken in France, but there are all kinds of Frenches and also the other languages, which mm. at least French as globally known as like very linguistically conservative and strident with this is the right way to speak. If there are these kinds of moves to say these two are as French as, I mean, they belong as part of the, the, Latin, the national landscape as much as this kind of orthodox I think notion. you put it better when you say English belongs in, into a national landscape rather than actually identifying it as an African language. Mm-hmm. Because there are politics to that as well. You actually reinvent the hierarchy that's already there. Already it's actually enjoying um, being at the top of the hierarchy and now when you actually reinscribe it as an African language, then it retains that position instead of being challenged. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. Fair but when, when, when you say it's actually part of the many dots. Yes. No, certainly, things. certainly. Yeah, and I, I think it also speaks to kind of like a multicultural preoccupation where yeah, yeah, just yeah. and leading to the next question about the relationship between language and culture and who is an African and how one performs this Africanness. Now, that's a bigger question of who's an African, but just talking to the, the relationship between language and culture. Okay. Um, can yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. Lang- the language, language, language is the carrier of culture, as he had said, and others have said before him. Um, uh, where and 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 the culture that is not necessarily stated, mm. you know, the culture that is not uh, tribalistic or anachronistic looking mm. back, but the culture that is dynamic, that's moving with the people, mm. um, that is also futuristic, you know, that's looking into the future. Um, language is able to carry those aspirations of the people, the, the memories of the people, you know, the past and the present and the future together. Mm. All of that coming into play at once through our uh, spoken and written and other forms of communication um, uh, uh, through language. Mm. And, and of course, the, the body language as well. Mm. So, definitely, yeah, there is a relationship there and it's quite strong. And um, we, 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 we look up to language to actually sort of define ourselves and our identity and not once and for all mm. but continuously and you know identity is fluid it's shifting all the time mm. and language is able to carry all of those that at some point this is how we define ourselves and as um, things change around us language is able to actually help us define ourselves anew mm. yeah and, and, and the cultural kinds of evolutions around us will help us uh, reaffirm mm. uh, some of our cultural identities as well as the newer kinds of identities that are actually evolving all the time. I, I really love the fact that you spoke about like this backward looking, I mean, mm-hmm. and that often comes from people with an interest in kind of social structures that support a backward looking uh, yeah, understanding of culture. Yeah. So I really like the fact that you, you keep mm-hmm. emphasizing the fact that these things are dynamic and they're moving and changing. Um, because a lot of the conversations I've participated in about language and its uses have also been conservative. Like, we must find a Zulu dictionary to translate the word for a test tube, and our job is mainly to codify, to find the English word and find the Zulu equivalent, and that is what we do. And I, I actually remember going to a talk uh, by um, now Professor Mkizi, who's at NMU, yeah. where she was talking about language and transgressing. And I'd love to hear what you think about like the relationship between slang and social change and young people really as drivers of linguistic change. Mm-hmm. How, how do we then also, when you're talking about this academic English, which, I mean, <laughs> academic African languages, yeah. which because of the kind of position English has, then mm. we want we might be tempted to emulate those kinds of very conservative. Well, it, it, you know, it's as, as you say that you. It depends from which perspectives uh, you are working with or working within. What kinds of language paradigms that you are employing? You, you, you talking about language and change, language and transgression, language and 
and, and evolution or development, let's say development, evolution, technology and development. And um and what I like is that um even in academia, knowledge production has now been realized that it is intersectional. We approach anything from a cross discipline, interdisciplinary kind of an approach. Um we find that if you work from that paradigm that looks at things from an interdisciplinary kind of a perspective, and uh, then one gets to see how developments in certain disciplines affect the manner in which we think mm. in a particular kind of a discipline, and and it helps us to see as well how narrow and parochial we would be if we work within the discipline itself, without taking into consideration other kinds of knowledge production processes around the discipline. For an example. Now of later there have been problems with nationalism or the nationalisms that we, we had. At some point nationalism was peak was at its biggest point when it was used to rally whole nations to oust even the colonials. Mm, yeah, American nationalism was key to was like key, the decolonial yeah. discourse. Yes, yeah. discourse and the like. But quite interestingly, nationalism is not endemic to the nature in, in which Africans had existed in pre colonial times. Serious. Yes. It's, yes. It's, it's, it has created its own problems mm. in its wake, and um, unfortunately, our whole uh, system of thinking about knowledge production was around national borders, national mm. kinds of constructions, and the like. So that even with the study and the recording and the development and the epistemologies that were developed around language development, say this is creating dictionaries and so on, so it followed narrow nationalist kinds mm. of, 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 of practices and ways of doing things and, and, and thinking processes and modalities that were ex- an exact replica of how nationalism worked in Europe, not how it works or it would have worked in, in Africa. Do you understand? Oh, so yes. depending where you're coming from, can you see? Yeah. Uh-huh. If you bring in uh, developments around the studies of nationalism currently and how they're blasting open all the paradigms of thinking around nationalism and the kinds of knowledge production system to sort of emanate from those older paradigms, then you would be at a point where you can begin to say language varieties that are urban-based are part and parcel mm. of our linguistic terrain. Mm. They capture the moment and we did not actually go to them as prescriptive to say, this is how you should be speaking, this is not how you should be speaking, mm. do you understand? You, you, you should actually begin to describe why the language is evolving in the language it is right now right sure that's that's so interesting and one of the things in like this decolonial movement that in attempts to disrupt euro modernity and question euro modernity by by making african nationalism mimic this we actually just keep moving in a loop True, true. We because within <laughs> the same framework, yeah. and we're hitting against the borders of the framework. Sure. Yeah, not moving beyond. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I, I'm deeply interested in, in young people as a young person, <laughs> and and also just like recognizing, especially with like such a huge youth population in our continent, that to treat young people's linguistic variations and developments as somehow a quaint 
cute, interesting side piece, mm. as opposed to, I mean, we are we are the majority, and the critical mass yeah. ought to be taken seriously as not That's just true. like this is some wild tangent. Yeah. Oh man, I love this. I'm gonna put this in my course too. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and I guess while while we're on this, um, just thinking about like use technology uses and how do you see that also playing a role, especially in kind of promoting literacies. So that's, that's especially the internet. Mm. Man, that thing is God sent. <laughs> Whoever created it is godsend. Um, I've been looking at um, there are still a few sites of on the internet where you find African languages um, content, but um, even though there are fewer, the ones that have come to visit, they, they are very interesting. Mm. Uh, just for an example, this is talking uh, as we start off that I my training is in African language literatures, and I'm interested in. And newer kinds of developments and so on and so on, especially now that um, the kinds of developments that we've been seeing throughout the last century, you know, the 20th century, and like, there's some kind of stagnation now. Mm. Um, and the stagnation that had been spoken to, but that is not changing. So now I go onto the internet at some point and I look at Zulu novels. I just type in Zulu novels. And then the internet actually took me to sites where there are these online novels that are written by people whom I do not know. They write little uh, kinds of episodes uh, to which the um, the blogger, the blog members would respond to mm. directing how the stories should be told. Oh, really? Like a right to, to yeah, choose yeah. your own adventure. Yeah, okay, your, nice. Yeah, it, actually, they, they respond to the author to say, this is nice, keep this uh, uh, thing going. Uh, we don't like that, keep that one going. And they're like, you know, making it interactive. Mm. And in a way, that kind of interactivity would bring in the manner in which the folk tale tradition mm. had been developed. Call response. Call response yeah, and the like. Yeah. And, and you actually see it happening here on the internet. Oh. Just on just one piece, you know, the, mm. the, the uh, narrative uh, in Sisu. And I was quite like, uh, happy to see that happening because uh, the, the, the belief is, is that Africans do not read. And yet when you go to these sites, do get a sense of how many people have visited this site, how many of them liked it, and, and you get from the responses that they spend considerable time responding to mm. what has been written. So Africans do read, mm. but it depends what you put on the table for them. So definitely that's one site we can, yeah. the internet is one technological means of actually beginning to deal with what we failed to do in print, mm. not only uh, by harnessing, you know, the technological advances uh, for a greater development of the language. And I think it stands to develop much quicker and better through the technologies than mm. through print, because with print, then there are gatekeepers, those mm. but with uh, this one, um, gatekeepers are fewer, and people would actually use the language as spoken as they would want it to develop. Mm than um, as um, academics would want to control and manage it. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited now. <laughs> I, I mean, we spend considerable amount of time online, and I think with 
Twitter and Black Twitter specifically as such a ripe space for challenging old modes of being and understanding mm-hmm. and meaning making. Um, this is completely consistent with that. Yeah. Uh, and yet it's kind of treated as like the back of the internet. Actually, mm-hmm. a lot of the public conversations right now in this country are playing out. Yeah. And also as a as a strange, I, I'm seeing like a, uh, a big a big divide that's developing amongst my generation of those who at least got a little bit of mother tongue education who are able to then participate on, on Black yeah. Twitter or to have particular kinds of conversations with certain people and not have conversations with certain people. Mm. Um, and, you know, even me, how do you look Black Twitter? Black Twitter. Because it is the side of Twitter that is predominantly driven by narratives and conversations and issues that black people are interested in. Okay. Yeah, okay. it's... I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know if anyone's ever demarcated Guti. This is the side of Black Twitter because it's the same app. Yeah, <laughs> you get yeah, on Twitter, Twitter but yeah. you'll, find, you'll find the conversations where black people... And I mean, there's been a really interesting thing of um, African Twitter developing. So conversations across the diaspora, the diaspora. About our hair practices, our linguistic practices, our relationships with our parents. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of online life has been pretty much mimicry until the social media space allowed people to then kind of explode Explode. completely diverse experiences. So yeah, that'll be sure. Okay, that that, that's a very interesting space for African languages as well. Um um, to sort of begin to exert a different kind of influence than what we've actually Mm. seen before or have come to receive. Yeah, I mean, African languages is in, what I mentioned earlier around this idea of like the lost generation, the ones who don't quite know what they are doing. It's your put yeah. So there is a sense of just like a generational gap, yeah. which obviously needs to be filled, but the idea of like a respectable, authoritative voice. Mm-hmm. Ought to cover the older generation, as you've been saying, is mm-hmm. completely not true. It's not true. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm super excited. <laughs> okay, yeah. just one last thing on yeah. Italian. Yeah. So, you, you're telling me something really interesting about how we can be part of like constructing and being part of that history, that lived history with Italian. Uh-huh. Please, okay. I need to get this <laughs> yeah. recorded because yeah. that was rich. Yeah. I have written a paper on his tagazel on Umbani, that's what I said, on Umbani. Um, responding to uh, a journalistic piece that ap- appeared in the Soetan, where um, there was a blog that was set up for people to narrate who they were using his tagazel. And then the bloggers uh, kept on saying that, oh, no, I only know his tagazel is my father's way to uh, that actually uh, stopped at the turn of the 18th century, for an example. And um, for me, it was now a realization that seemingly there is some kind of a technique that had gone missing, mm. where is Tarazelo, which are an open-ended kind of an art form, where you can come in and go out at any level. They do not have a particular structure. They do not want to start with the ancients, mm. you know, uh, for you to begin to sort of narrate about the, the genealogy of your family and so on and so on. They can also begin with you. Mm. But the bloggers did not know that all of that, that 
actually there is a way through Israel one can actually inscribe their own mm. high deeds, you know, deeds of, of, of greatness into Israel. Well these deeds of greatness or of of of, of, of greatness that is not as 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 as, as exponential of great leaders and so on and so on. Israel do take um, the deeds, good actions or bad actions, bad actions of great people and minor people. Mm. And um, the bloggers were not and fantastical. Even, fantastical <laughs> they were not even aware that that can go on. I wasn't aware yeah, of that. They, they were not there that they can go into those towns. As a result, I mean, um, the, the, the recent past about um, the June 16 people that fought in the June mm. 16, people that actually participated in the um, 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 massacre at Ville and so on and so on. We haven't had stories of them and their greatness mm. being inserted into Isbomozaru mm. because that skill and, and has keeping, been lost. And then we keep this memory as if it's the state's duty to kind of, and the state will always... Oh, they took over and then they write the history and the biographies yeah. of big men. Exactly. And so the liberation of the country was by big men alone. And yet the liberation was by ordinary people mm. who can, out of their own volition, create narratives and stories and as well give themselves is bomb that will actually go into the narratives that are the genealogies of the entire mm. family or of the entire family. That's something that um, contemporary people have lost. And, and I was bemoaning that fact that they always go for the template ones, you know, the dominant templates. Because we that didn't if you know. Are Gamini, <laughs> then they can steal the uh, template from Gamini from Swaziland because those are more elaborate and mm. they are longer. And then you use those as though they are your own. Whereas your own can actually develop alongside the Gamini. Because we can all Swaziland write poetry. We can all write poetry. And okay, before I, wow, this is completely revolutionary to me because it also then speaks to this idea that like the last generation without family, without roots, especially with like you know absent fathers, with migrant labour, with families you know being torn true, apart, true. with female-headed then households, then you cannot be able to identify yourself. Whereas Isbomo says you can begin at any point, sure. you can start with yourself. Oh my gosh, this is revolutionary <laughs> for my life. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs>
The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of VETS University. ASAWU is a union representing the interests of the staff at VETS. For more information, visit www.asawu.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave your comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. Jagan Merkel created our jingles.